Hello, I'm Sue Nelson and today I'm in Oxfordshire alongside the River Thames, a popular spot for ramblers and hikers and people just taking a pleasant cruise. But ecology-conscious hikers like myself could be unwittingly changing the landscape by spreading alien species across the environment. More on that in a moment. Also in today's podcast, we cover the ends of the world with reports on measuring the stability of the West Antarctic ice sheet and at the other end of the planet, an audio diary from the Arctic which includes how to cope with the cold when you're trying to do science. Minus 40 hertz, there's no two ways about it. That It's a really biting cold and anything exposed to that temperature just, just burns. Research published over the summer found that hikers in an Australian national park could carry up to two million plant seeds on their socks alone in just one season. As a result, hikers could inadvertently be spreading invasive species and one of the study's authors, Professor James Bullock from the Centre for Ecology and Hydrology at nearby Wallingford, has joined me on my walk alongside the River Thames to explain a little bit more about this study as it has its roots on the Dorset coastline. James, first of all, what sort of invasive species are we likely to find here in what looks like actually a sort of seemingly innocuous piece of countryside? Well, riverbanks are actually one of the most invaded habitats we have in Britain. So the sort of species you might see along here are Himalayan balsam, or Japanese knotweed, all of which cause problems with riverbank stability affecting native biodiversity. Japanese knotweed I've heard of, but not Himalayan balsam. What's that? It's actually quite a pretty species, which I think was brought into this country as an ornamental or garden plant. Uh, It's quite tall, grows up to about six feet, and has pretty pink and white flowers. The pods of the plant, seed pods of the plant, are quite famous. You go and touch them and they explode and throw their seeds out. So that's one way humans can affect their dispersal. This does a very similar thing to Japanese knotweed. It grows along river banks. It can cause instability of banks and also push out native vegetation. What you'll see also this time of year is the chestnut leaf miner. A lot of chestnut trees, will have, their leaves will be almost removed by the mining of this moth caterpillar. Actually we can see over here just next to us are Canada geese which have been established in this country for a long time and cause a lot of problems not just affecting native bird species but by uh, pooing in waterways cause um, a fertilisation effect which can affect what's growing in the water as well. So the effects then of invasive species are quite wide and varied. It's not just a threat to biodiversity in some cases? No, they have quite a wide range of effects. They can affect biodiversity directly, but they can also affect aspects of the natural world which are more of more direct impact on humans, such as bank erosion, pollution of waterways, causing problems with grazing lands. So you have invasive species spreading across grazing areas which uh, affects the ability of animals to graze on them. Now the Australian study found that different parts of a hiker's clothing could spread different numbers and types uh, of seeds. There are some seeds which have hairs or bristles on them which have probably evolved to allow their dispersal by animals. We come along with our, uh, our socks or our trousers almost like an animal's skin and forms a nice material for these seeds to attach to. So the more woolly the clothing you're wearing and the more bristly the seed, the more seeds will get dispersed by people. 
And how did this come out of research from Dorset? Well, we were interested in quite a different aspect of dispersal in Dorset. We were working on a species called wild cabbage there, which is quite a rare species restricted to our coastline, and it forms quite discrete populations along the coastline, which have been sitting there for probably hundreds of years. So we're interested in the reverse side of the question, what limits this species to grow where it grows, and what are the possibilities for its dispersal? Along the coastline of Britain, we have loads and loads of footpaths, and one possibility we thought of was that hikers could take the seeds of the cabbage around so we did an experiment where we found that seeds rather than socks or trousers would stick into the the mud on hikers boots and could be transported very long distances the natural dispersal by wind could take seeds a maximum of about 200 meters but hikers could take the seeds of over five kilometres. And so is that why you want to know? Is that why you you do this sort of research, in order to predict, possibly, or can you even predict, when you've got millions of seeds capable of sticking to somebody's hiking socks, what species are going to be transported where? Yes, the prediction is the key here. What we want to understand for alien species or non-native species is what species are transported, how far they're transported, and what are the mechanisms of their transportation. And the reason we do that is not simply understanding, but then we can use this sort of information in models of spread of these species to work out how we might limit that spread. So a lot of work on alien species so far has been saying, OK, we find the way the populations are growing and we go and try to kill them in some way. A much more efficient and effective method would be to prevent the movement of these species in the first place. And so that's what we're working towards, is understand the whole process of spread so we can look at the crunch points and limit that spread by especially targeting dispersal. How would you advise then to hikers, you know, how how on earth are they going to limit the spread of, of seeds? Yes, that is a big question, and it could sound a bit over the top telling people to be very careful about what they're transporting. But certainly in this study in in Australia, this is a highly protected area which is under threat from these European plant species coming in. So in that case, uh, the recommendation has been to put signs out for walkers, to educate walkers, to say, before you walk into these remote areas, just clean your trousers and socks off, just pick the seeds off before you spread them into these pristine areas. So I think in very specific circumstances, where we're trying to protect particular areas, there is something that can be done. James Bullock from the Centre for Hydrology and Ecology, thank you very much. And for more news from the natural world, do visit Planet Earth online. Dr Kerry Lewis is a marine biologist at the University of Exeter who specialises in understanding how marine creatures such as zooplankton and shrimp-like crustaceans called copepods will adapt to climate change, ocean acidification and pollution. Kerry recently returned from a four-week expedition at an ice base in the Arctic, only 750 miles away from the North Pole. She was part of the explorer Penn Haddo's Catlin Arctic Survey, which is investigating climate change and the effects of carbon dioxide on the Arctic Ocean, home to some of the coldest waters on our planet. We sent her off with a recording machine, and in her first audio diary, Kerry is at the Resolute Base Camp in one of Canada's most northern Inuit communities. We just had a phone call from Ken Boyer Care saying that they're now ready to take us out to the ice base after about 30 hours of being on permanent standby, so we're really glad that we're actually going to be moving and getting out to the ice base, but it's a bit of a last-minute panic now to get there within the allotted window, so we're all rushing around, packing everything into the van. 
going to be like two hours flight. And this is my first time in a Twin Otter, which is really quite a small plane. And we're in a plane with no wheels, which is slightly concerning. But it has got skis. So our Catlin Arctic Survey Ice Base is a uh, tented camp situated on the frozen ocean. We have a metre 70 of ice beneath our feet. Everything's kind of white, but with the light, it can look all sorts of different colours. Today it's looking quite blue. And the wind has pushed the snow up around all the tents that we have here. So there's these lovely big snow drifts at the back of every tent. And I'm going to give you a tour around the various different tents and tell you how we live out here on the ice. So I'm now walking inside one of the two science tents that we have here. And this is the laboratory where we do all of our sample processing and where I spend most of my time looking down my microscope at my copepods. So we have a, a heater in here, otherwise we wouldn't be able to do any work at all. It keeps the temperature in here just above freezing, so it means we can process all of our water samples without them freezing solid, which would obviously prevent us from being able to do very much with them at all. So I have my bench with my microscopes set up. I also have some uh, pieces of equipment for measuring oxygen consumption of my copepods, so their respiration rate. We also have a very large piece of equipment set up on the bench here for measuring pH of the seawater. It uses the spectra of the um, pH indicator dye, and it's a very, very sensitive piece of kit, so we get really good measurements of the pH, which is one of the main things we're looking at out here. Okay, so here we are in our sleeping area. We all sleep in unheated tents, which is the toughest part of being out here. Because of the problem of carbon monoxide poisoning, which is the Arctic's biggest killer, it's much safer for us all to sleep in tents where there's no heater inside so that that's not an issue. But that does mean sleeping in ambient temperature, minus 25, but when we first got here it was, it was minus 40. So getting into a sleeping bag at minus 40 is not that much of a pleasant experience. Um, and we're set up in a set-off area for sleeping, which is surrounded by an electric fence. That's to protect us from polar bears. We also have a dog on the camp called Tuk. He's been specially trained to go ballistic, basically, if he picks up the scent of a polar bear and bark like mad and, and warn us that there's one in the, in the area. Right, next tent. We don't have the most luxurious toilet facilities out here, but we do have tiny little tent with a couple of buckets in it very sophisticated we do have a bucket and tuck it uh, system here for going to the toilet and and uh, everything gets uh, frozen down and we take it off the ice it's we don't leave anything on the ice so today is sampling day we're up in the science tent where we have a large hole that we've drilled through the ice and this is our window into the arctic ocean below us the hole took about seven hours to drill and it's, um, it's quite mesmerising when you look down it. It's complete darkness under the ice. And we've put a tent over the hole to try and keep it a little bit warm so that we can do all our water sampling without everything freezing. Okay, so the first piece of equipment that we're going to be putting down our sample hole this morning is a Niskin bottle. And this is a grey five litre tube with ends um, which are spring-loaded so that they can close when we send a weight down the tube. And this enables us to take water samples at discrete depths beneath the ice so we know exactly which depth the water has come from. I'm here with my colleague Dr Helen Finlay from the Plymouth Marine Laboratories who's just going to talk us through what she's doing setting up the Niskin bottle. 
So we have the Niskin bottle attached to a wire and we're just cocking it now. Um, so we're setting the end caps. Um, there's two caps attached in the middle by a spring which we've just got to pull up and open. So we clip them open and then send them down, which is ready now to go down. So we're taking this sample from a depth of three metres. Once we've reached that depth, we'll be sending down a weighted messenger onto the wire, which then hits the spring load and closes the bottle. Come up a bit. Stop. So my Down. colleague, Dr. Helen Finlay, is now emptying Stop. samples from the Niskin bottle. I'll get her to talk through what she's just doing. Once we've collected our water sample from whatever depth, this one was three metres, uh, we just have to take the water out of the bottle and put it into our sample containers. So I've just got to rinse through the sample containers a couple of times with the seawater so that they're not contaminated with anything else. And these samples of water will go back to our laboratory tents where we'll process them. I'm going to be filtering the seawater to measure nutrients and microbial abundance and biodiversity. The biggest challenge and feature of living out here on the Arctic Ocean is the cold. One of the big things you have to be really careful of out here is avoiding frostbite. It's quite easy to get when you're trying to work with seawater out here in the Arctic. Obviously as soon as your hands get wet then that conducts the heat away much more quickly so it's something we really struggle with is, is keeping our fingers warm whilst trying to work with scientific equipment. So I have three sets of gloves but when I'm not using my fingers I'll quickly shove my hands into an enormous pair of mittens which can also put some chemical hand warmers in to take away that finger pain and warm my fingers up quickly after trying to do something. But yeah, minus 40 hurts. There's no two ways about it. It's a really biting cold and anything exposed to that temperature just, just burns. Dr Kerry Lewis with her colleague Helen Finlay on the recent Catlin Arctic Survey. There are some great pictures of the expedition on our Facebook page, by the way, and we'll be hearing more from Kerry in future editions of the Planet Earth podcast. From one end of our planet to the other now, as we ask, how stable is the West Antarctic ice sheet? It's one of the biggest questions in climate science. After all, if the ice sheet melted, then global sea levels would rise by between 3 and 5 metres. To work out how stable the ice sheet has been in the past, scientists at the University of Exeter have been using a process known as cosmogenic isotope dating. The technique involves studying isotopes, different forms of the same element, and Richard Hollingham met up with glacial geologist Chris Fogwell to see what he's found. So this is a cosmogenic isotope extraction laboratory, and this is one of the first in England. It's basically a clean air laboratory, so dust-free conditions. We use this airlock or antechamber. So let's go inside through the sliding door. And you've got a, a sticky doormat here. This is to take dust off our shoes. Yeah, it's basically dust is our, our big enemy in these places because it's absolutely loaded with beryllium, which is one of the isotopes which we're trying to measure. So we, we try and avoid getting dirt and dust in here at all. And as you might expect, the lab itself is sparse. White surfaces, fume cupboards and a blast of air from the vents above us, designed to keep the room free of contamination. 
Here, Chris's team is studying rock samples found on or near the ice sheet. You can kind of visualise the West Antarctic ice sheet as being a giant glacier. It's, a, it's an ice sheet, so that it drowns the topography, but it still quarries rocks from the base of the ice sheet and brings them to the surface at certain points. Now, we can pick up those rocks from both up on mountain sides, so where the former ice sheet used to be when it was far bigger, and on the modern ice sheet as well, which are coming up through the ice. Now we can test these and look at the long-term configuration of the surface of the ice sheet and how it's changed. Can we have a look at these these rocks then? So let's wander over to the, the bench here. This one's quite beautiful. So, it's some sort of granite, is it? It's basically full of quartz and different felspar minerals. We're principally interested in the quartz because this contains the isotope that we're analysing here, which is beryllium-10 and aluminium-26, and they're produced within the lattice structure of the quartz. So essentially, we, we collect these rocks from, from different important geomorphological locations across the, the mountain range and extract the quartz from them. Now, once we've got the quartz and we've cleaned the quartz, we can extract the minute amounts of isotope from within the quartz. And what's this isotope? This is this beryllium isotope? Yeah, so we have beryllium-10 and aluminium-26. Now, these isotopes are only produced by the interaction with cosmic rays which come through the atmosphere. Now, they produce the, the isotope year-on-year year at a reasonably well-known rate, which allows us to essentially use it as a clock, or the build-up of it as an exposure clock since the ice sheet changed its, its shape or structure. So when they're exposed, they're absorbing cosmic rays. When they're buried by the ice, they're not. Yeah, this is the theory that we base this technique on. Now, it's giving us a very good idea for where the upper surface of the ice sheet has been and when it was there, so it can allow us to reconstruct the three-dimensional shape of the ice sheet. So you've got this this bit of rock. It's about the size of a, a house brick. What can that rock tell you, then? Well, it can tell us a few things. Basically, we, we can get an idea of ice flow direction because we know where the rocks outcrop from, so we know where the, the, the rock's been transported from, which is one very useful thing. It can give us the, the structure of the ice sheet back through time. But more importantly, let's say by analysing the concentration of cosmogenic isotopes in it, it can give us the idea of the time since it's been exposed. And what have you found? We've found an interesting pattern which shows that the, the current configuration of the West Antarctic ice sheet in this sector of Antarctica has remained the same for hundreds of thousands of years. Now, this evidence is, is based upon the, the, the presence of features called moraines on the sides of the mountains. Now, above these moraines, you get long, long exposure ages, long cosmogenic exposure ages, which suggest that there's been no real glaciation of the mountains, of the upper parts of the mountains, for a long period of time. Now, if the West Antarctic ice sheet was to melt, then the likelihood is you would have small mountain glaciers growing as the ice sheet regrew essentially around its base we don't see any evidence of that and we use this and the long-term preservation of these moraines on the slopes of these mountains as evidence for stability of the west antarctic ice sheet in this sector so your research suggests that the west antarctic ice sheet is in relative terms stable now this somewhat contradicts other research that we featured in the planet earth podcast so a lot of contradictory evidence here Obviously, this is one of the biggest science questions on Earth at the moment, and there are several different lines of evidence being assessed here. The evidence 
we're presenting is essentially a one-way test, and it's a one-way test for one sector of the West Antarctic Ice Sheet. But we do find these features all over parts of West Antarctica. Now, if we can back up our findings with further data, it will allow us to have a more concrete test on this hypothesis. But at the moment, the evidence from this sector of the Antarctic ice sheet is, is very strong to suggest that the configuration has remained as it is for a long period of time. But as to the relative stability of the ice sheet, the, the jury is still out? The jury is certainly still out. There are other, like say, lines of evidence which are being drawn upon. There's a new large ice core being drilled by the National Science Foundation in the US at, at a place called the West Antarctic Ice Sheet Divide, which might provide definite evidence of Eumian or interglacial ice which will will sort of hopefully give us a a conclusion to this story but as always the competing lines of evidence are often not clear and don't provide a definite answer. Chris Fogwell from the University of Exeter talking to Richard Hollingham about the West Antarctic Ice Sheet. That's all for this edition of the Planet Earth podcast. Do check out our Facebook page and Twitter feed. I'm Sue Nelson. Until next time, goodbye. And thanks for listening.